0: you are now listening to the intersection podcast a place where faith meets facts a podcast made for the thinking christian and the skeptic i believe in a god who holds the heavens of the earth in his system i believe that on the basis of rational evidence frederick coyle once said this there is no Way to explain the origin of life, and I'm quoting Hoyle now in an earthbound explanation. They saw no contradiction between faith in God and the utmost excellence in rational inquiry. Do you have a soul? Well, let's explore that question. Now, when I sit here, or when you're sitting here watching this video or reading a book, you experience life as a singularity, or what we call the I, or the you. Even a child at their youngest age refers to themselves as me. They're acutely aware. The first thing anyone's acutely aware of is the singularity of their consciousness. Now, what's curious is the brain is not designed or set up to deliver that singularity. If we look at just one of the five senses, for example, like such as sight, Now, the system of nerves that deliver information from the back of the retina all the way to the occipital lobe in the back of the brain goes through, we're talking thousands of photosensitive nerves, traveling, crossing over in the optic chiasma, going through the brain and ending up like a spaghetti stock all over the place but concentrating in the back. Now, there's no singularity there and none of the senses are any different. Yes, there is interconnected neurons. The brain is a network but that would deliver the experience of a team, not a singularity. This is the curious dichotomy between what we experience as far as consciousness and what is the brain is physically designed to deliver. Because a physical system like nerve endings occupies space, by definition. We don't experience life in that way. We experience that as a perfectly converged I, or me, or ego. Now, Plato and countless other thinkers throughout the centuries have argued that because we experience reality in this way, there has to be a part of the human mind which isn't physical. What the ancient Greeks would have called the metaphysical mind and what future philosophers would have called the soul or the spirit. Now another thing to think about is that there is a difference between thought life and brain activity. They're not one and the same. Now of course they coexist. So if I have a thought and I'm in a functional MRI machine, they'll pick up A signal that that thought creates. Now in the same way that a puppeteer holds the strings that are attached to a puppet and moves it around at will, but they're not one the same. The puppet and the puppeteer are not the same. In the same way, could it not be that the soul or spirit or immaterial nature of consciousness is connected to but not the same as the brain? Now there's a very easy thought experiment that we can do to settle that question. So let's say scientists wanted to study your brain to determine what thought you're having when you're having certain brain activity. So they hooked you up to machines, they had all sorts of monitors turned on, and every time you had a thought, every ounce of your brain activity was being recorded. So which neurons were firing, at what intensity, uh, at what duration, which parts of the brains were being activated, etc. Let's say we had sophisticated futuristic equipment that could track every electrochemical activity in your brain when you had a thought. Now the one thing no matter how well they could monitor your physical brain activity there is one thing they could never know by watching every physical event occurring in your skull and that is ironically the thought itself. The only way we could build a catalog of which thought goes with which brain activity is if we asked the subject what thought they were having when a certain brain activity was being triggered in the brain. Because no matter how you measure the the amount of neural, neural activity, every ounce of physical activity happening in the brain could be measured, yet it would tell us absolutely nothing about the thought itself. The subject would have to let the scientist in on their thought life. It is not accessible purely physically which proves that there is two simultaneous events going on when a a conscious person has conscious thoughts. There is the thought itself, which exists at an immaterial plane, and there is the physical brain activity that coincides with it. And they're tied together like strings. You could poke someone's brain with a prod and shoot electricity into their head, like they do in in uh, surgical cases, and trigger a thought. But it doesn't mean they're the same. Now, another interesting proof for the soul's existence will be near-death experiences. Now, in our modern times, with modern technology, with trauma vehicles such as helicopters and ambulances, we can take people from a scene of an accident to, the, to a trauma center where our surgical technology is, is more advanced than it's ever been. And as a result, what we've had is more and more people will go into the biological death spectrum and be brought back. And interestingly, one of the results of that has been more and more surgeons and hospital staff noticing stories in which their patients will see things while they're brain dead that cannot be explained by the physical brain. In his book, Immortality, The Other Side of Death, Gary Habermas compiled the more credible of those types of stories. He interviewed dozens of surgeons who would claim to have these stories, And he picked the ones that had the most credibility. And what he used as a metric was the story had to have no one in the story telling the story had a vested interest financially or otherwise in the story being true. Um, In many cases, these surgeons were not religious. They weren't selling their story to, uh, to a publisher. They were just simply telling the story and there were multiple staff that could back up the story. One of the more stunning stories in his book is that of a young girl who came into the hospital brain dead after being submerged underwater for over 19 minutes. She did not even have pupillary light reflexes which means that at the most she had lower brainstem activity and that's it. She certainly couldn't hear or listen or was not conscious in any way. Now the girl was expected to die. The family, after several hours, was sent home across town to rest to come back the next day. Now, miraculously, in the middle of the night, this little girl spontaneously recovers. And then she starts talking to the staff as though she had never been unconscious. For example, she described other staff members who were no longer on shift when she woke up and describing them very accurately. She also then stated that she flew with an angel across town and saw her family. She described what song was on the radio, what her mother was cooking, and whether what her father was saying as he was grieving in the other room, and even a board game that her brothers were playing in, in another room. Now, when the family came to visit her that night, they were told that she had recovered, they were asked by the staff, quickly, if any of these details were true before the family ever had contact with the girl, and it turned out that those details were true. Now, when you do peruse these credible, near-death, out-of-body type of experiences, it becomes simply another layer of evidence for what we can logically deduce has to be the case when it comes to human consciousness which is it is not purely reducible to simple biology there are two things going on so there it is in a very small nutshell the basic argument for the existence of the human soul I hope that at least makes you think god bless and hope to see you back thank you for joining us please visit our website and social media Find us at intersectionvictoria.com Goodbye